Hey, it's Cam. Welcome back to another ep of This Might Be Helpful. And I guess we'll just see where this goes because today we are joined by the esteemed Joe Fowler, my main man, the man behind me doing most of what I do. And today, Joe is going to pepper me with questions that I have not seen, I have not read, and thus I cannot forecast how helpful this episode will be because it's entirely in Joe's hands. How's it going? Um, yeah. So the other day we uploaded a story on Instagram where Cameron asked the audience for a Q&A. I took all the questions from the Q&A, made a list of all my favorite ones and got a few cheeky ones from the last couple of Q&As we did as well. And Cameron has no idea what I'm going to ask him. There's a few really great questions. There's a few fun questions. We're going to mix it up a little bit, have a bit of fun. So do you reckon we get started? Let's go. Hell yeah. Start off strong. First question from... Pixie Sticks 666. <laughs> Great name. How do you wake up feeling good about the day? Mm. Uh, waking up and feeling good about the day is more waking up and then making myself feel good about the day because we often can't control our state when we wake up and our power really comes down to responding to how we feel when we wake up. So quite often I wake up with anxiety, a little bit of adrenaline in my chest, some cortisol. And I can tell immediately when I wake up in those states that if I were to not do anything for myself to change that state, then my day is then out of my hands. And so it's less about how do I wake up feeling good and more how do I wake up and then engage in things that make me feel good. Right. I, coming from this, actually, there's another question about your morning routine. I want to ask you, what is your ideal morning routine? What would be your morning routine if you had the perfect morning. Mm. I mean, lately, my, my mornings have been pretty perfect. Um, I've got to do something for my mind, something for my body, and something to clarify my intention for the day. So I wake up at six basically every day. Uh, I go outside immediately and stare at the sun because that's how we ground our circadian rhythm. It's how I tell my nervous system that this is when we wake up. It literally just sets that internal body clock. And then from there, I merge into some kind of movement. Uh, it's either I'll go do a yoga session or I'll go for a walk or a run or I'll ride my bike or I'll go for a swim. So something active. I am consistent in the fact that I do something active, less consistent with what I do that is active. So I just got to, I got to move my body in some way. And I like to keep things diverse and interesting. So I change it up, but rise, sun, move, then meditate because it's incredible how just five to 10 minutes even of breath work and meditation can wipe the slate clean so that I can walk into my day with a really clear intention around what I'm doing. And so that really is my, my morning routine. I'll delay my coffee for at least an hour, usually two hours, because not only does that kick in and actually give me a bit of a boost through that caffeine, but when we have coffee, as soon as we wake up, we don't give our own nervous systems and our own physiology a chance to produce all of those energizing compounds for us. And it also guarantees that later on in the day, we're going to have a bigger crash because caffeine blocks the breakdown of adenosine and adenosine is a sleepy digestive enzyme. And so when people wake up and they smash themselves with coffee and then they get to 1 or 2 p.m. and they have a crash and they feel anxious, it's because now the caffeine is worn off and all of that sleepy digestive adenosine is still in there. And so we get tired. And so that morning routine is you have to generate warmth from within. Like our energy comes from heat and movement. And so to generate the energy that I want to go forth and crush my day with, I have to do something that generates that heat from within. Yeah, great. You broke that down into one sentence before. It was a move your body, move your, what was it again? Rise, move, meditate. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Next question from, now I don't know how to pronounce this, O-S-R-H-X-O, Osrahoxo. Um, how do you help another who won't help themselves? Well, if somebody's unwilling to take the shot, then it's difficult to keep passing the ball to them. You can only do so much for other people, but until they are willing to embrace their own responsibility in their life, in their existence, then 
I will probably just create space for them to feel what they want to feel and allow them to come to the conclusions that they already know exist. It's just realizing that and acting upon that can be a result of conditions, right? Because we look at making positive decisions as a simple thing of like, we'll just make better choices, but we are the sum of everything we've ever experienced, all of these infinite components. And so what finally makes somebody act is when the conditions have built up to the point where they don't really even have a choice. And so for a lot of people, change and evolution only occurs at a precipice. It occurs when they have no other choice but to change. And we can do our best to empower the people around us and say like, hey, how you are feeling right now is not indicative of your entire life. And you have way more control and power than you realize if you fully realize that and take actionable steps. But it's about making it easy before you make it hard, gifting them with empowerment, letting them know how much potential they actually have, and then allowing them to work with that information in their own way. But if they're not going to take the shot, then conserve your own energy because it's not your responsibility. Yeah, good answer. I really I agree with that wholeheartedly. And it's a great analogy before if you can only pass the ball to someone so much if they're not willing to shoot. Okay, at Pat Risha, Pat.Risha, this is a really good question. I really like this question. I haven't seen this question before, even though it seems like a basic question, but I really enjoyed it. What is your biggest, smallest struggle? A tiny thing that's massive to you. Mm. Communications are difficult for me. Like ongoing communications on the internet, replying to people. It seems like yeah. a small thing. Like some people have no issue with it, but for me, it is a, it can be a tremendous source of angst. And so I've done my best to outsource that and streamline a workflow around the communications. But really, that's, that's a significant issue for me that, you know, relatively, I, it's, it's hard because the small things end up being big things. Yeah, over time. Yeah. Over time, for sure. So what else do I struggle with? That's definitely your biggest one. <laughs> I think about it. You are shocking awful at that, aren't you? It's, I have to message you like, hey, this person messaged you like a week ago, by the way. I'm not going to like, this is a personal conversation. You better like answer it. <laughs> it's I, I do best in this setting, like the one-to-one deep flow connection. I just don't have the kind of energy that can... I can't. It's, I find it difficult to scatter myself across a lot of tiny conversations like comment sections and DMs. It's just... Um, more challenging for me. I like these connections. That's where I thrive. And so yeah. recognizing that allows me to work with that rather than continuing to shame myself for not doing something that I'm not built for. Um, and that's why you've got me and the rest of the everyone else <laughs> responding for you, helping you out, sending you the ones you need to respond to, doing all that sort of good stuff. Very helpful. Um Here's a fun question. I think we can go a little bit into your past with this one, your history, where you are, what you're doing now. The simple question from at car bombar, do you smoke cannabis? And if you want to elaborate on your relationship with cannabis, please. All right. Uh, I vaporize cannabis. Um, I am a cannabis nurse educator. And my role within the cannabis industry in Australia is to educate practitioners, clinicians, doctors, psychiatrists, pharmacists, and patients on how to establish healthy relationships with a plant that can be truly empowering rather than it just being a crutch. Um, my history with this plant has been, you know, just an adolescent period of trial and error and experimentation and um using this thing as something generally expansive as something that is a creative catalyst that helps prompt tangential creative thinking um, and offers uh, me an opportunity to alter my perspective and see things from a really um, different way. And my fascination with it also comes down to the endocannabinoid system, which is the overarching control system of all homeostasis, my homeostasis being the maintenance of the internal balance in response to the perpetual chaos of the external world. And so cannabis to me is a really a functional medicine. Like my relationship with it has been one of self-medicating well before I realized that I was self-medicating. Um, I just, later on, I just, I kind of realized that I 
I used it because it would almost give me a bit of a reprieve from my own overactive brain. It would help to slow things down a little bit, increase the space between two thoughts so that when some new idea or thought emerged, it had space around it. And I could actually do something with that idea rather than it just being immediately wiped away by a million other ideas that come along. And the endocannabinoid system as well is a critically important system that nobody knows about. It's basically a 600 million year old biological supercomputer that is found in every single system in your body. It help, it regulates mood, memory, reward, pain, sensation, inflammation, sleep, digestion, immunity. And when this system is disrupted, our entire balance can be disrupted. And cannabis is a plant. It is a medicine that interacts directly with this system. And by pairing it with functional changes in our lifestyle, we can actually use it to create new ways of being. You know, it, it alters people's emotional response to things like pain and trauma and difficult stimuli so that we can actually analyze and confront these experiences from a different perspective and change our relationship to those things. And so really, cannabis is a tool that allows us to interface with reality in a different way. But whether that way is beneficial or not comes to the intentions that we have before we use it. 100%. So at Carbomba, Short answer, yes. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, here's an interesting question. I think we can go into your past again with this one. Uh, at Ikaray underscore, are you a native Aussie or did you move there? Anyway, love your content and your mindset. Thank you, my friend. Uh, I am a mudblood. I'm a dirty, dirty hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> the half-blood prince is what we call it. <laughs> I have an Australian mom and American dad. I grew up in Montana. And then about 16 years ago, we moved to Australia. We've been back and forth ever since. But I spend most of my time in Australia, living in far north Queensland, and get back to the States whenever I can because I will always have a very deep love and affection for the United States, particularly Montana. And so I am kind of... I mean, I'm not really a native, but even that's a relative term. Um, I'm I'm half and half. Half and a half. It's a good way of putting it. You're almost too American to be Australian and too Australian to be American. It's yeah, like <laughs> a liminal space between two identities. You're the only person in America I could go to a gas station with in Montana and get two four and twenty meat pies. <laughs> <laughs> the only gas station in America that has them. It's incredible. That was such a surprise. Yeah, that was insane. This is a fun question. Tina Estrella 111 asks, what is one of your greatest fears and how did you face it? So a greatest fear that you have faced already and how did you go about it? This is kind of a challenging question because I'm not sure I'm really consciously aware of my fears. Um, they've tended to be pretty palpable and visceral things that emerge in the present moment, like um, life endangering activities, like I, I ride motorcycles, do river guiding, whitewater kayaking, those situations, there've been lots of scary moments. I think that you know, one of the scariest things ever that is always going to be scary is taking people down a, a river at the beginning of the season when the water is high and I've got a boat full of people that have never paddled in their life and it's my job to make sure that none of them die. And that's always been a, a, a scary thing, like leaving leading trips. And so I think that my biggest fear, I mean, my biggest fear in those situations is making a poor decision that results in somebody getting really hurt. Yeah. And Unless they deserved it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no fear around my life ending up poorly and me ending up on the street and making decisions that alienate me from the rest of society. Those are not really things that I'm conscious of. And I do tend to be pretty grounded in this moment. And so whatever my fear is, is whatever I'm potentially stressed about on any given day. Honestly, I feel most alive when I am actively dying. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. But do you want to elaborate a little bit further? I think a, a key component to me living an invigorating life is doing dangerous things safely. I want to do dangerous things because that level of risk is what invigorates me. It makes me feel like I'm truly squeezing out every bit of satisfaction from this existence. But that 
occurs through going beyond your comfort zone and engaging in things that have risk, but doing that in a way that still is safe so that it's a, an aspect of longevity. Because if you do dangerous things unsafely, you don't get to do them for very long. Well, yeah, we kind of grew up doing extreme sports. We're a very mild version of extreme sports. Like we skated, we surfed and everything like that. We weren't very good at it. We weren't that extreme at it. But just doing it, like you, there's times where you're going to hurt yourself. There's times where you're going to fall over, eat shit. It's still the most fun you can ever have. It makes you feel so good about yourself when you do it, when you're done with it. It's it's the best, best possible thing. Some of my... Uh, in the moment, worst days ever have ended up being my fondest memories. I have a really fond memory of you, Cam. Actually, I'm going to tell the crowd. Uh, this is one of the last days I had in Australia. We're going for a surf in Ocean Grove, Rafts. And Rafts is not known for being a large surf break. It's no, being extremely mild. But this one day we went out, it was abnormally like strong, insane whitewash, not really great surfing conditions, but like just a ridiculous day of the surf. And we went out there. It's me, it's Cameron, and it's one of our friends, Jared. And Jared and I are paddling out the back, paddling out the back. We're not really looking out for each other at this time because we're looking out for ourselves. It was very dangerous out there. We're just trying to get out the back as quick as possible so we didn't get absolutely taken by these waves. All of a sudden, we turn around. Cameron's all the way on the shore. He's already washed back up to the shore. And he's there. His board's like over yonder. He's leaned over, throwing up on the beach. I'm like, what the hell happened to Cam? And Cam just leaves. Like, he gets up and leaves. And this is like within five minutes of us beginning. So Jared and I surf for about 20 minutes. And then we go in going, this is ridiculous. Let's go in. Call Cameron. Cameron, where have you been, mate? Like, what have you done? You just left straight away. He's like, mate, that was the worst moment of my entire life. Like, I got as far out as possibly could. Got absolutely dumped by this wave. I landed with my head on the sand. The board landed on my head. I rolled over two or three times. And as soon as I popped out out of the water, another wave is about one meter from me and just smashes me again. And the same thing happens. I roll over. I don't even have time to breathe. I'm swallowing all this water. This board's hitting me in the head. I'm hitting my head on the sand. Happen, I get up again. Happens one more time. Just takes me out. And I'm in agony. I get to the beach and just start throwing up everywhere because I have so much water in my lungs. <laughs> and it sounds horrific, but God, it was the funniest thing <laughs> It was one of the only times I never made it out back. Um, that's happened twice ever where I go for a surf and I just decide, nah, not today. I don't want to keep just getting beat down like this. I lost two of my fins. They, my board smashed into me. I ripped my wetsuit. I just went, this isn't, I'd like to go out surfing for therapy, but that was just a beat. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's a fond memory. I can laugh at that now. I laughed at it that day. Yeah, there was, well, we all got chicken sandwiches and we lived happily ever after. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get back to the questions. This is one that I think you'd be very, very, uh, very good at answering. You have a lot of experience with this. At Brito Swold one or Brito's Wold or Brit Oswald, that it's definitely Brit Oswald. Uh, she asks, how do you deal with constant change that is in your life? Because you deal with change more than most people given your lifestyle, your life choices as well. Mm, how do I deal with constant change? Uh, it's less something to deal with and first something to accept that any notion of things staying the same is really an illusion. And by recognizing that the true nature of the universe is perpetual change from moment to moment, that nothing really maintains any form of coherence unless we are relying upon our memories to generate that uh, sameness. But when you really fully embrace and accept and surrender to the ongoing nature of change that is our reality, then you can really flow with it and you can be on the leading edge of that change rather than being just dragged along by it. And this comes down to the notion of going with the flow, right? We talk about going with the flow as, yeah, just, just be cool and breezy, man. But going with the flow recognizes that we are all on this river of life. We are all in this together. And when you go with the flow, it doesn't mean that you are avoiding all of the danger. It just means that you get to more intentionally and deliberately pick your line. You get to pick your problems. You get to pick your challenges. You get to pick your growth. You get to pick your change. Whereas the other people who are not accepting 
of the fact that this is all ongoing change. They're just getting dragged along by the whitewash, hitting their heads on boulders, getting snagged in trees, being like, why is this happening? That's not a helpful question. Instead of saying, why is this happening? Like, how can I flow with this? How can I accept this? And that can be a daily process of acceptance and any notion of sameness and the desire for things to remain the same is really disempowering because it's just not how reality works. Yeah, exactly. And also the more you deal with change, the more change becomes the same. So the more you get used to change, you know what I mean? It's, it's a repetition sort of thing as well. Yeah. Um, here's a question that I think everyone wants to know. Everyone wants to know how you get your ideas at Thea Lawson says, what started your spiritual journey? Cause obviously everything that comes from your content is based upon this journey that you're on, I guess. Uh, yeah. What started it? What interests you originally? I mean, it's something that started for all of us when we were born, right? Like you get thrust into an existence and you have no idea what's happening until you get to a point where you go, oh, hang on, hang on. I can actually start to take some control here. It's not just life is happening to me, but life is coming from me. And the you know, the journey into spirituality, even the notion of spirituality in itself is just a kind of a utilitarian framework that helps us to generate meaning, purpose, and place amongst a universe that is inherently devoid of any actual meaning. And so it's our way of generating it ourselves. And spirituality, philosophy, religion, these are all frameworks that we can use to navigate this existence and reduce our suffering in that process. And so it just is something that really makes sense to me. I started meditating when I was like 14, 15, didn't really make it a habit, just did it off and on. And then started to pick it up again at 17. But it wasn't until I was maybe like 21 or even 22, where it started to become a real habit because I had more stress. I had more things to deal with. I was not handling my anxiety as well as I could have. And so I turned to meditation and breath work as a means of just helping get my head right, another form of self-medicating. But then through that process of using meditation from a perspective of neuroscience rather than spirituality, I ended up kind of tuning into that realm beyond what we can describe with words. And that's where we get this feeling of something greater. And so my journey of spirituality is, is not just one of spirituality, it's just one of life. And we pick things up and use them to navigate this experience. And then we continue to find things that resonate and just develop this kind of comprehensive toolkit of things that we can fall back on when we need to use them. And so spirituality for me has been a very utilitarian and practical thing, as opposed to something that is in itself purely spiritual. Like when I started to meditate, that's when I started to get better at business. I started to make better decisions. I started to be able to establish boundaries and actually get in tune with what I do and do not want to do. And so meditation and spirituality is a means of examining the mind, because if you do not examine the mind, that's when you end up with these people that say, why am I like this? It's like, well, you've never actually asked that question in a way that gives you an answer. But if you want to ask that question, you can. All right, let's have a fun question. This is a upbeat question. It might be hard for you to answer on the spot because of what it is. But let's get straight into it. All right, Cameron. What's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. I'm surrounded by kindness. And I know that that's not like, I mean, it's, it's literally like I can't even count. My, my, my entire existence has been filled with kindness and, and support and advocacy and people that empower and part of that is that, you know, you, you, I do that for other people. And it's kind of like you get back what you put in, in terms of actual kind moments. I mean, I, I, I like to look at the little examples of people that don't know you that are kind to you. Like two days ago, I went and grabbed a coffee and the barista said, no, that's already been paid for by the person in front of you. And it's such a simple thing, but it literally like lightened up my entire day, my entire week. And those little moments of like restore, restoration, restoring some kind of you know pain or discomfort that you might be feeling. Because when I got that coffee, I was in a grumpy mood. I was like, I don't me just get out of the house and go go change my environment. And then having that paid for, I immediately I kind of paid it forward. But it's there, there's kindness everywhere, 
if you believe that as such. Like once you believe that you're surrounded by kindness, you'll start to see that you're surrounded by kindness. And because of that, I couldn't even pick a singular moment. Yeah. And that specific example is great. It's one thing where you can change the world for a better place so minimally with $5. Like with $5, you can go to your local coffee shop and pay for the next person's coffee. And they're thinking they're getting a free coffee, whether really they're going to pay for the next person. So everyone's paying the same amount. It's just a chain reaction of you being nice to the next person. They're going to be nice to the next person. They're going to be nice to the next person and so on and so forth until you get one cunt. <laughs> yes, that's that's how it goes. And that person is, um, you know, unfortunately not being the recipient of uh, the kind of kindness that empowers. And so they end up becoming kind of trapped and isolated in this uh, world of suffering. And I hope they enjoyed their coffee though. Yeah. Every time, every time I think about that, it's cause it's funny that that story comes up every now and then once every couple of months, you're like, Oh yeah, I should totally do that. And you do it and then you forget about it. And it's like one of those things you should, I should definitely put into my daily, like my weekly routine. If I could do this every Monday, how good would life be? Like, you know, it's one of those things you don't see the result of, but you know, it's there. Mm, yes. Random acts of kindness, dude, because that right there, that little random act of kindness, it's, it's uh, back to that. Um, there's a, that, that notion that maybe it's a Chinese proverb where the, the gardener who plants a tree doesn't do it for themselves. They do it for the future generations that are going to sit in that shade. And so you do something just with the intention of planting that seed and being kind, not with the expectation that you'll get to receive it or even be aware of that the effect of that kindness, but just doing it with that intention is really beautiful. And I just remember something back to that thing of like one tiny little thing that I struggle with, uh, picking my nails. Oh, mate, my nails are horrible. We went through a stage together where we were both like, nah, stop picking your nails. I'll, I'll stop it if you stop it. And then we stopped it, but at some point we started again. So through sheer tyranny of will, let's make a commitment now to stop well, the nails. Well, my thing is, my nails are okay. It's the skin around my nails have started biting to substitute for the nail biting. And it's gross. It's gross. I hate it, but I just can't stop it. Here's a good story for you. I know I'm t- kind of taking away from your podcast, but do you want to know how I started biting my nails? How? <laughs> so dumb. When I was in uh, kindergarten, before I went into like the first grade of uh, primary school, elementary school, depending on where you're from, um, I had really nice nails. didn't bite my nails. And my sister used to bite her nails. And my sister's two years older than me. So at that age, I was, you know, extremely influenced by her. So whatever she said goes. And she used to tell me that if I'm going into you know, elementary school, I have to start biting my nails. And I went, what do you mean? And she's like, you have to start biting your nails. All the cool people bite the nails. And if you don't bite your nails, you're not going to be cool. And I went, geez, I'm only, I'm only five. So like, I want to be cool. I'm going into a new situation, a new school. So I start biting my nails just because... Like, that's what I, I want to fit in. You know, I want to fit in with the rest of the kids biting their nails. I don't want to be a loser with nice nails. So I started biting my nails and then now I'm 26 and it hasn't stopped. <laughs> that is so deeply manipulative. There's, yeah. Kara's car is wild. It's a great pairing though. Like, imagine pulling that off at seven. That's so impressive. All out, all out of jealousy. <laughs> all right. Back to it. Fun question for you, Cameron. What's the favorite thing you do in your spare time? What do you do when you're not working, when you're not making content, when you're not being spiritual and looking within oneself? <laughs> um, I am never bored. My biggest challenge is, is picking what to do in any given moment because there's always so much to do, so much fun to have. Um, I try and get out into nature as much as possible, hiking, swimming, exploring new rivers, getting amongst it. I play a lot of music. Uh, my guitar is my banjo. Um, I've been getting into just exploring different types of arts and crafts lately. Like I just bought a bunch of painting material because I wanted to start painting. Um, mm. I just spend my time like just going deep into whatever I, I want to go deep in. Photography is another big part, part of that. Um, just whatever is around me. I just like to have fun, like engage that inner child and just do things for the sheer enjoyment of them. Yeah, hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. We have a lot of similar hobbies, and I think it's just because we grew up together. So everything you did, I was like, I'm gonna do that. 
<laughs> and vice versa. I just never, um, I, I, yeah, I pick new things up all the time. I've never been a team sport player. I've always been like a solo kind of person. Yeah. You guys should check out Cam's golf skills. My word. He's incredible. <laughs> um, okay. Here's the question that everyone's been asking throughout your whole, since this started, since last year, the number one question is about what books do you read? And this person asked, top three books you found most life-changing and thought-provoking. Chris Kennedy asked that question. Uh, a New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. That is a profound book that really was the first one that shifted my awareness of what was possible in terms of this reality and how powerful our role is in creating it. Um, the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, but transcribed by, I think, Stephen Miller was the name. I do have the book list in, my, in the link in my bio, so you all can go check that out there. Um, I mean, I've loved some of the classics like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, um, even Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. That was really a profound book in terms of understanding the frontier and landscape of my emotions, expanding that emotional vocabulary. Because when we extend our emotional vocabulary, we're not uh, confined to these restricted parameters of like, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm mad. But like you, you take those emotions and turn it into 150 different ways of describing how you feel, which can allow you to navigate things without falling into the societal story of what that thing is. Um, uh, Neurodharma, I can't remember who the author of that is right now, but Neurodharma was that, um, it's a blend between like neuroscience and, and Buddhism, which was a really powerful book for me. That's kind of where these ideas of how uh, ancient philosophies and spiritual practices are really aligning perfectly with what modern neuroscience is saying right now which is where I kind of had that idea of neurophilosophy come from. Um, I think that we just got to start a book club. Yeah, I think we do. I think we got to commit to that, don't we? Someone asked me what my favorite song is. Suddenly, well, here, I'll tell song. you what. Well, here's another question. Do you have any favorite music artists? And Mac underscore four, name three. Name three. Um, Shaky Graves is- Unreal. Is my 10 out of 10. Music. He is my all-time favorite, which is- Absolutely. Just, just, I don't even need to mention anyone beyond that. I love all music like hip hop, fucking trap, EDM, folk, bluegrass, heavy metal, classical, folk, indie, heavy metal, like what, whatever it is. I vibe with basically all of it in different times. Like music is a really powerful way to self medicate as well because if I'm not feeling a certain vibe, I will just put on some beats, put on some tracks and allow that to, that vibe to infuse me. And that's how, that's how I do a lot of my writing. It's how I do a lot of my creating. Some of my best videos, personally, I think have been when I've just come, I've been blasting music and I just take that energy right into filming something. Um, but Shaky Graves, yeah, I just, I love, I love the, the roughness and the, the diversity of Shaky Graves. I love, I just love a good banjo. I love a good, like, stomp around a barn i don't know what it is about yeah man a good barn stomp but i love a good barn stomp dude we love a good barn stomp man (laughs) 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 all right cam here's a question that someone asked and it relates to me it relates to numerous other people and i'd like to get your perspective on it because i need help and this person needs help and i'm sure thousands of other people need help how do i let go of my phone addiction Ah, yes, 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 yes. The great so challenge of the man. Get rid of it. Mm. Well, uh, make it easy before you make it hard. And this comes down to the first 10 minutes of your day. If you can delay the use of your phone by 10 minutes in the day, you give yourself an opportunity to decide where your attention will go during your day. But if you wake up and in that first 10 minutes where you still have that kind of subconscious permeability, you're still in that theta state, you're not quite awake, you're not quite asleep, whatever your brain receives in that little window is what it be- is what it will keep going back to throughout the day. So if you wake up and you check the phone, you're going to keep going back to the phone. If you wake up and you hit the vape, you're going to keep hitting the vape. Whereas the the longer you can 
delay that in the morning, the more power and agency and control you have over that phone throughout the rest of your day. And so don't, don't look at it. I think that first of all, it's, it's also got to come from a place of love, um, shaming yourself and, and feeling guilty and self-critical about the phone use is not really fair because they've created this technology that just so perfectly hacks our neural circuitry that you couldn't hope to have any kind of control in this relationship until you start to get conscious. So no wonder everyone's addicted. It makes sense. They are highly addictive. They just tap into that circuitry so well. And so don't guilt yourself into changing. Don't shame yourself into changing, but love yourself into changing. Say, I am lovingly aware that this phone is dominating too much of my attention. And when I am consuming, I am not creating. And in order to create, I need to consume less because you have all of this information in your mind. You have everything that you need to do anything that you want if you just start acting towards it. And to me, that really starts in the first 10 minutes of your day. So if you know that your mind will latch on to whatever you give it in that first 10 minutes, you can really use that to your advantage. So the way that I set up a healthy relationship with my phone is that when I go to sleep at night, I put it on the do not disturb, have my alarm set, but I also put it on airplane mode because what happens when the alarm goes off is that the do not disturb goes off and then you greet it with all of those notifications. Even if you get up early and you do the thing that you wanted to do, you're still greeted with all of that noise, all of that energy. And we have to protect ourselves from that energy in the morning so that we can choose our vibe rather than it be chosen for us through the phone. And so do not disturb airplane mode, put the phone across the room. When you get up, turn off the alarm and then put the phone away and go about your day. Write a list, go outside, look at the sun, just give your brain anything else to do that isn't that phone. And although it seems really difficult when you're deep into that kind of addiction with the phone, you'd be surprised at how quickly you can regain that control and autonomy with that brief little moment of delay in the morning. And so that's where it starts. And then, you know, set, set timers on and catch yourself. If you have caught yourself uh, using the phone, but you don't know why you're using it, like you open it up, you flick across a couple of different pages of the home screen, you open one app, you close it, you go to the other app, you close it start to develop awareness of when you are not using that thing intentionally and realize that in those moments it is using you. And then you can use that as like a, hang on, fuck that. I put this phone down. I'll go and do anything else. Yeah. It's very environmentally based as well. Like you're not going to, you're not going to beat your phone through sheer tyranny of will. It's one of those things. If you catch yourself looking at it all the time, if you want to be doing work and not looking at your phone, Put your phone in another room where you're doing work. If you go into the bathroom, don't take your phone with you. Just areas where you don't need your phone, necessarily like need it, throw it away. Put it in the bin for 30 minutes, an hour or whatever. Because mm-hmm. you, if you if you keep it on you and just hope that your willpower will take over, it most likely won't. Yes, that's such, that's such a good point. Like Use your environment to your advantage. That is one of the great skills that humans have is we have a remarkable capacity to manipulate our environment, but often right now, our environment manipulates us. And so if we can take some control, like if you want to have a morning without your phone, go outside and put it in your car and lock the door so that when you have that urge to pick it up, you have to, there, now there's barriers in the way. And so a lot of, I think, establishing healthy relationships and good habits is not you're right, not down to the sheer will and determination, but remove barriers between you and the things that you want to do that are that you feel are beneficial and healthy, and then place barriers between you and the things that you don't want to be doing, the things that you want to have more control over. And through the simple act of just like putting your phone in a different room, turning it off so that all of those are little barriers. If you really want to go for it, turn the phone off, put it in the car, lock the car, go inside, do the work that you got to do. The world will wait. Time marches on. It doesn't matter. And then when you have that desire to go check the phone, your brain will be like, no, there's so many things I got to do in order to do that. So I'll just not do it. Like capitalize on laziness. If you put a little bit of effort into putting those barriers between you and the phone, then your laziness will actually help you not use the phone. Spot on. Spot on. Cameron, I'm doing a bit of an interactive question in this one. I've sent you a link if you want to open your chat. Uh, It's to an Instagram account called Undead Maruk. And Undead Maruk asked, I make SAG core art. It's a way of self-expression for me. Do you think is a negative or unhealthy trait? And I want you to look at the art because the art's pretty rad. Oh, it's beautiful. I I would, um, I mean, my, my honest opinion is is no, that's not a, a negative or, or unhelpful or unhealthy trait. And like you are, 
a creative being that is translating your experience into art that people resonate with, that people feel something when they look at. And the most powerful and meaningful art is often coming from a place of discomfort, a place of sadness, a place of of big emotions. And most people don't have an, and many people don't have an avenue to express those big emotions and to be actually be able to turn that ethereal energy of our thoughts into something that we can hold, something that we can hear, something that we can see. But the most impactful music for me has always come from a place where I listen to that artist and I go, damn, who broke your heart? Because you are feeling big things right now. And it is a gift that I am able to witness it. So no, the power of our words is intense. If you look at it and you say that it is negative and unhelpful, then you're going to create that reality. Whereas if you look at it as a beautiful, raw expression of the inner turmoil of man, then you create a reality that other people get to tune into and that can be helpful. Yeah, it's awesome artwork as well. I just wanted to emphasize that. It looks amazing. We're both big fans. Um, Speaking of art, creativity as well, this next question, this next question comes in from Anamine Deboa. Deboa. Anamine Deboa. How to connect to your creative self? I'm told I am, but I don't do anything creative. Mm, okay. Well, start with the language. Start saying to yourself that you are creative. I am creative. I have infinite creativity. I have infinite ideas. I am this universal energy that through the act of creation, I am a co-creator of this reality. So it doesn't matter what people tell. Oh, I take that back. If people around you are saying that you are creative, then it's something to listen to because it is quite a compliment. And everybody is creative, whether they think they are or not. A lot of people don't think they are creative because they were told when they were young that you're better at math. And that's, you know, that's a that's a left brain type of thing. And people that are good at math often aren't creative. But even the process of mathematics is creativity because you're taking these these unknown and known elements and coming up with solutions and stacking the infinite potential of reality into some kind of answer. And that's what creativity is. It's this combination of known and unknown elements where we gather experience and we translate that into some kind of manifestation. So when it comes to actually engaging that creative energy, start with wherever your curiosity is, even if it's a mild curiosity, because that creativity is something to take a proactive role in developing. Um, I I really believe that uh, right now we have an opportunity as a species to become multimodal creatives where instead of being creative, but only within a certain set of parameters, only within a certain style of craft, we can actually allow that creative energy to transcend the pathways of its origins and express itself through different means of creation. And I look around right now and I know that this podcast that we're doing right now is creative because we're coming up with new and novel sentences based upon this combination of we have known elements in each other's minds, but through this conversation, we create new novel elements. I look around and I see my neighbor who mowed his grass really beautifully and I can see the tracks of the mower were done in this really creative way that ended up like just being a super effective and efficient way to mow the lawn without, you know, me, I'm going back and forth and choosing random sporadic lines in the lawn. I look like a, like a robo vacuum and I would look at, across at the neighbor and go, that's a creative way to mow the lawn. I think that. It's probably looking at you and saying, that's a creative way to mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty creative. <laughs> and it was an awful analogy, but what I mean to say is that creativity comes into everything that we do. And by dropping the notion of, of how we think we should be creative, we can really allow ourselves to tune into new and innovative ways of doing things ourselves, And that leads to new and innovative ways of living and being and thinking. So start with whatever sparks your curiosity and go towards that thing with willingness and openness and a beginner's mindset and squeeze as much out of that experience as you possibly can and then continue following that curiosity. And as you start to allow that creative energy to have a an outlet and a means of expressing itself, you start to empower it and creativity will become a greater and greater part of your day and your way of life. Yeah, absolutely. There's another question as well. Where I think the answer is, the question is different, but the answer is almost the same. 
Uh, Amanda Hogstan says, how do you find your life path? Mm-hmm. Follow your curiosity. Follow your curiosity. Find out the things you don't want to do. Find out things you're curious about. Try them out. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing. Um, when we talk about the, the life path, choosing a path means that you are following something that's been done before. And there's nothing wrong with that. But So you can either choose a path, which is some kind of linear avenue that might have been established before, and you get to follow the instructions and the directions and continue and going where people have gone before. But choosing your path is one that is going to be inherently confusing, full of turmoil, full of uncertainty, but also incredibly um, profound and meaningful and purposeful. And so purpose is generated through our active involvement in pursuing and creating whatever it is that sparks our interests and curiosities. And the thing about choosing your path and having a kind of a stubbornness to that is that by following your curiosity, there will be many moments. I've had plenty of moments in my life where I'll, I'll sit there and go, I wonder how this is going to end up. Like when I was 16 and I started doing my first photography business, I, I, was, I remember consciously thinking, I wonder how this is going to pan out. And then it started to merge into videography. And then I started to do weddings and working with tourism companies. And then I got bored at that point and I went to nursing. And then I was like, well, that's a, that's a crazy shift in direction. That seems like they couldn't possibly come together. But then <clears throat> through going towards nursing and getting that qualification, branching into the medical space, and then having my natural curiosity about cannabis aligning with the emergence of the Australian industry, then I had the nursing and the interest in cannabis. And then because I had the background in the videography and the photography and the recording and the editing, I could then do something that hadn't been done yet in that space, which was to create a podcast where I started to interview different cannabis researchers and whatnot. And so it's like, without having followed my curiosity into photography, I never would have ended up into the cannabis space, nor would I be where I am today doing this podcast with you. And so you can't possibly know how things are going to turn out and you cannot know what the path is until you've already traveled it because nothing ever makes sense until you have hindsight. All right. So I think we have time for about two or three more questions. First one, digital wolves. What can I do when I reach my life goal? Because I feel depressed now. Already reached his life goal. Already reached his life goal. Get more goals. It's only finished when you decide that it's finished. Whereas if you just see this as a great unfolding cosmic drama and you are an active participant in this reality, if you reach a certain goal, remind yourself that the, the journey really is what it's about. And that sounds cliche, but this is, this is down to neuroscience as well. Um, if you, all of us have experienced a disappointment that occurs after a much anticipated event, whether it's graduating high school, um, getting uh, that new job, getting a raise in a new position, traveling the world, we, the, the, the desire to engage in those things comes through dopamine because dopamine is released in anticipation of securing some kind of reward, some kind of, um, new acquisition in life. And then when we achieve that thing, when we receive that thing, because dopamine is released in anticipation of that thing, and now you've secured it, dopamine drops. And when dopamine drops, we get melancholic and we get depressed. And so just knowing that that is a natural effect of achieving any goal can help you to flow with that melancholy and sadness when you achieve those big things. And then for me, it's a lot of retraining and rewiring my my circuitry to find joy and satisfaction in these small actions and behaviors that lead to those big goals. Because then when I get the big goal, it's just like, ah, it's just another, it was like, you know, the sum of that equation that I followed. But what I really enjoyed was doing the whole thing. Like I, I like, you, you know, this about me, I like to create, I like to build, I like to generate. I don't really care about the maintenance of things as much. And that can shoot me in the foot sometimes until you start to build a team around you that helps to balance out those strengths and weaknesses. But if, if you've achieved something and you're still alive, then maybe it's not your life's goal. Maybe you have more to do within you and you can give yourself a pat on the back and really be proud that you achieved anything at all because many people don't and they are just passive bystanders in their experience and they're constantly looking around them seeing other people achieve and they never actually take those steps themselves so be proud of the fact that you did 
anything at all and then go do some more stuff. But give yourself the space and the permission to take that next chapter slowly. Go have fun. You don't need to have another goal to validate your position within society. You are far more than your achievements. You are far more than your ambition. And so if you can give yourself a pat on the back for achieving something and then go have some fun, the next goals will emerge and that ambition will spark up again. And just understand that all of this is a constant ebb and flow and nothing lasts forever. Unreal. Johnny Bassey asks, how many fingers and toes do you have? I think I have too many asking for a friend. <laughs> I know that Johnny has way too many fingers and toes, so I don't need to get in there and, <laughs> and and reveal how many fingers and toes that I have because that is deeply personal. Okay. I think we'll end it on this question. This is going to be a good question to finish with. Cameron, Rhyme Dreams asks, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Mm, I would give my 18-year-old self. <laughs> don't, I was going to say, don't say buy Bitcoin. Because <laughs> like, yeah, okay, cool, mate. No, you didn't even have that idea. What advice would you give your grandpa? Kill Hitler. Yeah, good advice, mate. Thanks. <laughs> uh, my advice would to, I mean, things could not be unfolding more perfectly. And so I would tell my 18-year-old self that when things don't seem like they're working out, that's actually when they're working out the most because you are seeing what is possible and that is clashing with what you thought was possible before. So trust this process, continue to be proactive in creating this existence and be patient with yourself. Act quickly, be patient and continue to act with, with love and compassion and curiosity and things will unfold in a way that is more brilliant than you can possibly imagine. Great advice. Uh, it's a good place to uh, finish this off, I guess. I think uh, I'm looking forward to the direction you're going in right now. Looking forward to what the future has for us. Yeah, man. I think your 18 year old self would be very proud. I think, I think he would, and I'm I'm proud of him, and I'm proud of you, and I love you, and I'm so grateful that you are on this journey with me. You are a significant component to this entire experience for me, and. I wouldn't want to be doing it with anybody else. So thank you. No worries, mate. Love you. Love you lots. Love you.